Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. So what's going on? Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's Friday. It's August 7th. Thank you for joining me. I do appreciate it. And thanks to the patrons that help make the show possible. Folks like Jolene and Paul, Bill, Ashley, Yuri, and Green, Janet, and Sarah, and Frank, and Juanita, and Gary, and Peggy, and Teresa, I appreciate the support. I could not do the show without y'all. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron of the program and get access to the exclusive content and uh, also get a really cool bumper sticker or two, um, <laughs> you don't have to put it on your car. Uh, you can put it on other people's cars. That's totally fine by me. Uh, go to thepetecalendarshow.com or check out the uh, links in the description of the podcast. Uh, so we have a... A new, what is this called, an officer misconduct agreement that was signed by Buncombe County's law enforcement agencies. Uh, Should we defund the police as homicides rise in major cities? And did you know that you can get kicked out of a jury pool for supporting Black Lives Matter? Uh, Apparently you can. Uh, All of that is coming up, but first we're going to talk with Rob Tofano who is the Public Safety Communications Director with the City of Charlotte, but also he is a uh, member of the Law Enforcement Strategic Public Relations Agency. He has worked in media, with media, and he works with police departments during you know crisis management and how to get their message out and stuff like that. It's a pretty interesting discussion. Hope you stick around for that. But first, um, have you seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains that is so amazing that you just got to keep looking at it? You got to keep looking for more and more by that same photographer. That's how I was when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina. He's been shooting landscapes for two decades, and he got into this because, well, he had a passion and a love affair with uh, photography, but he was working at a you know regular job, uh, but he realized, uh, with the help of his daughter, that he wasn't having enough time with his family, and he was like, you know what? I want to spend time with my family. I don't want to go to the grave regretting that I worked so much instead of spending time with them, particularly when they were kids, so um, he went off and pursued his dream. And I'm glad he did because his work is brilliant. It is amazing. It's stunning. It's beautiful. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Look, I can't describe it. A picture's worth a thousand words. His is probably worth like four or 5,000 words. Um, but go to his website. Look at the works of art that he's got there. Uh, these are affordable for any space you're looking to fill. Redrockphotonc.com. Use the promo code PETE for 20% off redrockphotonc.com. Joining me now is Rob Tofano. He is the Public Safety Communications Director with the City of Charlotte, and uh, he's got a really unique uh, career path that he took to get there, and I think he offers a pretty unique insight into sort of the media and policing world. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Pete. Sure. So, let me... I, I met you in 
probably now almost uh, what twenty years ago. God, we're getting old. Um, <laughs> down in Charlotte, you had you had just come from New York, and uh, I noticed you've been down here for twenty years almost, and you still have yeah. the New York accent. Uh, so you just can't shake that. I see, but um, the it all depends on how much how much drink how many uh, how many drinks I've had or how irate I exactly you know, that, that it'll, is it'll, true. It'll creep out every once in a while. That's so true. When I get mad, it comes out too. I don't know why, but. Uh, <laughs> So you, but you came from, uh, you came from New York down to Charlotte. That's where I met you because you were a reporter. And then I learned pretty early on, you actually came from law enforcement. So kind of walk us through where you started. It was NYPD, wasn't it? Yeah, I worked in Hell's Kitchen for the better part of 11 years, just in, uh, just outside of Midtown. Uh, when Hell's Kitchen, this was 89 through, good golly, 2000, uh, 2001, actually. Well, so close to 12 years. Uh, Hell's Kitchen, when Hell's Kitchen was Hell's Kitchen, this was before the, you know, the Giuliani administration came in and went with broken windows theory. And, uh, you know, when I was working Hell's Kitchen the first several years, this is when New York was still somewhat of a snake pit, mm -hmm. you know, inception of the, the, the crack cocaine epidemic and prostitution and your quality of life issues. It was uh, no place that anyone in their right mind would want to live. And that uh, wasn't too long thereafter that uh, we had some leadership change. The mayor's office and uh, police commissioner uh, spent 11 years there, uh, watched that more Hell's Kitchen morph into uh, a place that a lot of people started investing in and uh, had a lot of corporate investment, a great place to live. Now you can't touch real estate up there. You'd have to right. rock <laughs> to afford something up there. Uh, being there, part of law enforcement and with NYPD for about 11 years or so, I got this itch. Always had a, a thing for journalism. I got a break and started working at the Fox News Channel in New York as a writer before I got my first on-air gig in Roanoke, Virginia market, an ABC affiliate there. And then uh, slid down to Charlotte, North Carolina with, uh, you know, WBTV, that's our CBS affiliate in, uh, in Charlotte, and uh, did some crime reporting on their, their 11 o'clock broadcast and uh, came back full circle, back on the law enforcement end and uh, started doing public relations for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, I want to say, I don't know, 13 or so years ago. And uh, I guess it's been a slobbering love affair ever since. Ever since, exactly. So, uh, so this, I don't know if I've ever talked with you about why on God's green earth would you go from <laughs> law enforcement to media, to a TV reporter of all professions? What was that you about? Know, <laughs> yeah, I, I know, you know what? I, I tease my wife all the time. She's always talking about how I can't enjoy the moment. I'm always romanticizing about what the next move is going to be. And it, <laughs> it seems like every decade or so I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll reinvent myself. And I was at a, a, gr a grilled out with some friends the other night. And I said, you know, 10 years from now, I could be a zookeeper for all, for all you know, and, <laughs> and the more I talk about it, the more appealing it sounds like, you know, like something to do these, especially these days with what's been, with what's been going on in the profession. It's been a, it's been a buzzsaw recently for law enforcement. Yeah. And that's why some of the stuff that you've been doing, you also uh, uh, work for uh, and with a, an organization called LESPRA, which stands for Law Enforcement Strategic public relations agency and i got that right i think um and so and you've done this sort of private sector work as well over the years uh going around and talking to police departments and uh, a lot of people don't know this actually happens but people from the media reporters and such will go and talk with uh law enforcement firefighters i've done these in the past as well yes. and you go and you try to tell them like this is what the media needs because a lot of departments have no idea what media people need and how to feed that beast, basically. Yeah, and 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 a necessary beast. You know, it, it's not so much communicating to the media. It's really 
leveraging the enormous reach that the media has and the trust that the media has and using the, the media merely as a, a vehicle to communicate to the communities. And to your point, you know, that that's lost on a lot of even major city police departments where traditionally they they've seen the media as a as a burden, as someone who's picking through their garbage and, you know, and, and, and trying to uncover and expose. I'm trying to get them to kind of flip that mindset somewhat and recognize that they could be a very powerful medium to communicate strategically to community community members because of that enormous reach that they wield and that enormous trust that, that, that the local media wields. Um, I remember there was a, a somebody, I think it was the George W. Bush administration. It might have been Ari Fleischer, the, the PR guy, the, the uh, press secretary. And he said he'd walk through the... Uh, the, you know the the White House press corps in the press room, and then everybody would be hanging around, and you know he would chit chat with them. But he always felt like he was walking around through like a lion's den after they had just <laughs> eaten, you know. So like yeah. they're like they could turn on you at any moment, and so there is that. I mean, that is a that's part of that dynamic, that relationship. You want to you and working for CMPD, you want to try to build that up with media. But on the other hand, you know that they're going they're going to savage you if if there's an opportunity to do so right <laughs> yeah dude to back it up on the area flasher uh, flesher thing i you know I, i've heard that quote of his too and i find it rich that he's in that lion's den now as a right. contributor for, for one of the uh, for one of the major news outlets so strange uh bedfellows for sure but uh, you know uh, and maybe maybe it's my naivete you know and maybe it's because i i'm a recovering journalist and i understand the gig and, and what it involves you know, I, I don't feel like I've ever been treated unfairly, and maybe I'm in the minority. I understand the job they have to do and, and what it is that they're trying to do and how important that work is. You know, if we step out of line in government, in, in law enforcement, we need we need to be accountable to the public. I mean, they pay our freight. We're doing their work. They give us the authority to police. So we should, at the very least, be available, accessible, and responsive to when questions need to be answered. And, and maybe I'm old school. Um, but I think that's the mindset that a, that a lot of major city police departments need to apply. And, and uh, it's encouraging to see, uh, at least of, of, of late, that some of them are starting to apply that and recognize just how important it is to to hold yourselves accountable, be responsive and communicate. Is is that part of Well, do you think policing is changing? It's shifting right now. Oh, I can tell you 30 years in the business. I haven't seen change like I've seen in my 30 years than I've seen in the last two and a half months. It's been monumental. From policy, directives, expectations, culture, training, and, you know, and, it, and it's, a, it's a damn you know, shame that it took a national crisis and people taking to the streets for some organizations to recognize that they've been tone deaf and that policy updates, that's not, you know, that's not anything that should be shrugged off or uh, looked at as a burden you know, things evolve, expectations evolve, and why shouldn't policies and training and culture evolve right along with the rest of society? So when you say culture evolved, what was the culture and now what is it evolving into? Well, I think that, and I can't speak for all organizations, but I, I look, I work with major city police departments on three continents now, and, you know, it's it's entrenched in the, in the culture that, uh, you know, uh, we know best. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're burdened or traditionally been burdened when outsiders come in and, and they want to collaborate or give us input on, you know, on policy and on expectations and, and, and how they want to be policed. 
you know, I always remember conversations I've had with some police chiefs. They've never done a day uh, with a with a, a bulletproof vest strapped right. on or a gun belt on their on their hip, and they're going to tell us what policy needs to look like. Well, you know what? <laughs> they give you the authority to police, and they should at least, at the very least, have some input on how they want to be served. So I, I, I think that, you know, what I've seen over the last two months is that more and more of these major city police departments, they're, they're starting to recognize, appreciate, and accept that. And uh, again, it's it's a shame that it, it took something that happened in Minneapolis to, to have this great awakening for the profession. More with Rob in a minute. First, if you are awakening to uh, the new COVID reality and you realize, you know what, I need to keep my uh, office place clean or my house clean, you need it sanitized and disinfected, I have got the equipment for you. Well, actually, General Equipment Rental in Weaverville has uh, the equipment for you. The Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant. All right. Don't worry. It is safe for kids and pets and food contact services. And it is an all-in-one. The Vital Oxide Disinfectant is an all-in-one hospital-grade EPA-approved germicidal disinfectant sanitizer and deodorizer. So what does that mean? I mean, it basically kills everything, okay? It kills 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, like all of them, okay? Yes, including the coronavirus, but also E. coli and MRSA and H1N1 and influenza, norovirus, all of it, as well as mold, mildew, and fungus, all right? So it does all of that. Um, There's no rinsing required afterwards. Uh, It's non-toxic. It's hypoallergenic. It is colorless. It is odorless, and it's 100% biodegradable. And it is super easy to use this machine. It is like a shop vac, basically. It has four wheels. You roll it around. It's cordless, and it's got a little sprayer, and uh, it just it cleans everything. And then it's good once it's treated, uh, sanitized for up to ten days. And then all you got to do is spot clean the stuff like the cash register that people are, are are touching. So you can obviously see if you own a business the applications and the use for this device. It is only at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Family-owned and operated for three generations, they are meeting all of your equipment rental needs from construction and earth-moving stuff to lawn and garden equipment. So whatever your project is, whether you're a homeowner or business owner or general uh, general contractor, General Equipment Rental has the tool that you need. They are also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. Go to generalrents.com forward slash Pete and get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings. Uh, these things are awesome. I actually have one. Uh, it's an American flag. It's super comfortable. And so if you need some new masks, use generalrents.com slash Pete. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Think outside your toolbox. I'm speaking with Rob Tofano. He is the Public Safety Communications Director with the City of Charlotte um, and uh, has also worked in the private sector advising uh, law enforcement agencies on uh, how to make improvements and also crisis management, I believe. Um, and so, and actually, one of the things I was watching uh, the other day uh, were a couple of your videos, which is such a great idea. Uh, it, it, it You talked about, you know, working with the media, but it's almost like you're going around the media on some of this stuff because of the access on the digital platform side. You've got videos where you talk with like one of them was a convicted felon who's like turned his life around and started a nonprofit. You do an interview with a a mom who lost, you know, both of her sons to murder in the streets. Uh, You talk to a city councilman in Charlotte who's 
uh, got a reputation as kind of anti-cop, um, but, you, but you had a conversation yeah. with him, and I saw you do a ride-along with a cop uh, who was, you know, you were asking him how he does the job and how do you how do you deal with the stuff that you've seen, and uh, I think like those types of videos help tell the story of of cops on the beat. That let's be honest, most people don't know what that life is like, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head. You know, I, I appreciate and recognize the limits that the conventional press has. You know, everything's consultant driven and formulated and, you know, they have time constraints. And, you know, sometimes a story needs, you know, three, four, five minutes to be told to really get the context and the layered end of things. And, and media sometimes, you know, you, you get 45 seconds or, or a minute to give these quick little sound bites. And it really doesn't lend itself to, to um, providing context. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're taking an approach here, at Charlotte Mecklenburg Police, where we're going to touch those third rail issues that most major city police departments won't touch. We're going to dig in and we're going to pick it apart, put it out on our digital platforms, and you know, the response has been nothing short of you know, amazing. You know, people people have an appetite for this, and that's that's encouraging to 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 hear and to see in an age where everything is, you know, a soundbite or a meme or a social media post that people still find value in, in digging in deeper to these kind of stories to get to get some context yeah well content is king and it helps you scratch that that itch from the media world so you still get to do yeah. that <laughs> oh you know jones and all the time i you know miss those live shots and miss that storytelling but it also you know it, it, it is as eye-opening and as valuable as i think it's been for the community you know quite selfishly it's it's helped me tremendously you you, you mentioned that city council member who's been somewhat of, of a you know a, a lightning rod and a firebrand and some would argue critical at times of of police and how he believes that the black community is you know um uh, disproportionately uh, served mm -hmm. and he would argue even sometimes you know brutalized the hands of police and he you know given some sound bites and i thought i had it all figured out sit down with a guy for 45 minutes on a couch and he and I have far more in common than we do differences. You know, he, he explains what he means when he, when he, when he says defund the police, he explains what he means that, you know, I don't want to abolish that maybe police departments are living in lanes and operating in lanes that they should arguably have never been living in mental health, substance abuse, you know, all these, you know, they're expected to be these, uh, these crisis, um, uh, negotiators, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, mediators and social workers i mean you can go around the maypole all day so when he says defund he's saying maybe take those funds out of the kitty from police departments and reallocate them to more qualified professionals so law enforcement can get back to the core charge of public safety and i don't think you're going to get any pushback from most major city police chiefs but if you're just listening to the conventional press or an occasional little blurb that you see on social media you would think that this guy is somebody who just wants to abolish the whole profession and uh is just vilifying law enforcement right and it, it, this is one of the things and i've interviewed you know police reform uh advocates and uh, and even abolitionists and i hear this same argument that the police are doing all of these things they shouldn't be doing they're not qualified to do it and they and some of them say and you know and the cops will tell you that they don't want to be doing it either is that true that cops like oh, they don't want to be going like on a domestic violence call yeah not just you know we we just put out an internal survey here asking officers, rank and file officers, if we could eliminate anything from our service, from our, our list of services that we, we provide, you know, what would what would be some of the, you know, some of the areas. Some of the top ones were, you know, minor traffic accidents without any injuries, hmm. noise 
noise complaints. Um, check the, check the welfare that you know that somebody, yeah. uh, um, domestic related issues that aren't violent in nature. I mean, there were there were a multitude of them. You know, there were I, I want to say there were twenty four hundred calls for service just this year alone for cars that were disabled. That means they broke down in the road that we had to respond to twenty four hundred times. Probably in all likelihood, wait for a wrecker to get there and get the car out of the road probably an hour or so we've got look i mean we've got 72 homicides in in town so far this year you know our focus should be on violent crime and and uh, you know keeping community uh, keeping them safe and, and alive uh, i don't know if our time was really well spent spending 2400 occasions on cars that were disabled and i mean we can go around the maypole all day on noise complaints a barking dog someone lighting off a firecracker in the neighborhood you know i heard a bump in the night it, it, there are qualified people out there that could be first responders. And if anything rises to the level of criminal activity, then by all means, call for the support of police on the back end. But how is how realistic is that? Right. You you recognize you go to a call for service. You think it's one thing and all of a sudden it, it turns into something else. Right. And, uh, and and all of these ideas that I hear and I understand them. I just wonder, is it kind of Pollyanna? ish that they're you're going to send some counselor out to a, a, a you know a domestic call and uh the next thing you know uh, the guy starts you know beating up on that counselor or the violence interrupter or whatever and they start whipping up on that person and they kill him and at some That's point the yeah then at some point what the, the the pendulum swings back the other direction right and everybody's like how could you send these people out on sure. this call sure Sure. No, no, no. That's not lost on me. It's, it's so funny you bring that up. I was having lunch with a colleague of mine and we were just literally just having the same conversation. You know, 20 percent, let's say it was 20 percent of all of our calls for service uh, this year were violent in nature. You know, so which would lead one to believe that the other 80, the remaining 80 percent of them were, were not violent in nature. It's hard to quantify how many of them could have been violent in nature had you not had a uniformed presence with a weapon and training right. response to that call instead of a social worker. I don't know, Pete. I, I, I don't. And I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach to this. I, I do think that office or the, the, the profession is spread awfully thin and jumped into a lot of these lanes, whether it's mental health or substance abuse and, and the like, that others have you know, literally abandoned through the years. And we're kind of the tip of the spear and we're left to to manage those lanes right now. There, there's got to be some give, though. I mean, we've got 175 vacancies that we can't fill right now. Police officer vacancies. We've got, you know, crime, violent crime in particular is spiked considerably. And, um, you know, uh, I, I ride along to your point you mentioned earlier with a lot of these officers. There's nights with, you know, the, these men and women that aren't even getting lunch breaks. They are literally at the at the mercy of the radio going from call to call to call to call. It's inceptive incessant it just does not stop more with rob tefano in a minute first you know what else doesn't stop the all-star powerhouse team rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team they buy and they sell homes and they're very very good at it they're the only ones i would call if i'm selling my house uh we're actually in the buying phase we're just starting our buying uh a home phase and so we're getting the emails now of all the listings and uh there's a lot of property that moves in western north carolina uh and so we're getting the emails we're looking at homes we're looking at lots to possibly build on and Rowena Patton uh, and her all-star powerhouse team. They were the only ones that we called. You should, too. She's the only Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. Uh, that's a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from realtor commissions. Uh, 
And uh, they've given back like three quarters of a million dollars, more than that, actually. Uh, And it goes to police officers, it goes to firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military. So veterans, active duty, and retired. Uh, So give her a call if you're in any of those professions. Keep more of your own money. And uh, 333-4483, put them to work for you. Call them, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. Rob Tofano is the public safety communications director with the city of Charlotte. Um, so let me ask you, what is the morale like uh, among officers right now? You know, eye of the beholder. And, you know, they're, they're you know, each individually, they, you know, they, they, they've got their, you know, they, they wear their hearts on a sleeve. So a lot of them open up to me. Uh, I, I think a lot of them are starting to recognize the need for for the reform and why there's such a big push for it. I think where a lot of them are getting hung up is, you know, the national dialogue, you know, the some of the irresponsible comments made by, by politicians. I think a lot of them really get hung up when, when the politics start creeping into the profession and better yet into into public safety. What about the con- uh, this? Uh, one of the arguments I hear is this concept of the militarization of the police departments. That that's a huge problem, and that uh, the you know a lot of these protests would not become violent if the cops didn't show up looking like they were you know ready for violence. Um, yeah, yeah. What's the what? What does the police force think about that? Yeah, uh, you know uh, we have a very layered kind of strategy when it comes to demonstrations. You know, our first line are always officers in just their soft uniforms on bicycles when things start elevating and bottles and rocks and other debris are being thrown and hurled at those officers in soft clothes that's when we roll in our civil emergency unit and they are to your point equipped and they're uniformed and a, a lot heavier of, of a of a um uh, of a uniform with knee pads and chest protectors and helmets and uh, they're the ones that you know are taking the rocks and the bottles on and, and trying to de-escalate things. We roll those original initial officers out of there, the ones in soft clothes, uh, because things are getting, uh, uh, you know, uh, too too violent, too dangerous. And, and that's when we roll in our civil emergency unit officers. But we don't start there. You know, that's where we end up when we're responding to violence. You know, with, that's, we don't proactively put those guys out there on the front line, almost like we're waiting for a rumble mm-hmm. if you if you catch my drip. Oh, yeah. Uh, and because that's what it seems like their argument is a lot of times that it, that, well, if the cops didn't show up looking like they were ready for the fight, then there wouldn't have been a fight, which right. I, I'm not so sure about that. I think there are a lot of people that show up to the rallies and use the cover of the rallies or the protest marches in order to commit that very violence and to prompt the reaction from law enforcement so then they can get the video and a little bit of street cred. Right, they get a little bit of that too. They get to brag to their friends that, uh, you know, oh, I threw a, a rock at a cop. You know, yeah. uh, that's yeah. that's part of it. Um, and, but, and you know, that's and that's interesting. And and I spent, you know, they they were audacious and brave enough. The city of Charlotte, uh, second or third night into it, when we, things were really heating up, uh, they they allowed me to go Facebook Live and embed myself. I saw that in, in with the crowds, <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, uh, that that too was eye opening because you know you you just I think you just hit it on the head, and I want to dovetail off it. The overwhelming majority of demonstrators, and I can't speak for every city, I can speak for this city, the overwhelming majority of the demonstrators, I'd say 90 plus percent, these are just you know white, black, blue, green, yellow, that you have the men, women, they're bringing their pets out, that they're out there because they believe that some injustice has been perpetrated and they are trying to 
exercise their First Amendment. It's that fringe. It's that 10 percent that are bent on throwing a rock. It's that 10 percent or they're bent on throwing a bottle and getting things all fired up and getting everyone twisted. And, and then, you know, the, that's when the mayhem ensues. It was eye opening for me because, you know, being in the business for 30 years, I've always been on the other side of the line been the guy that, that's been taking the bottles or the rocks, whether it was in, you know, Crown Heights in Brooklyn during those riots or Washington Heights and, uh, you know, uptown New York uh, back back in the 90s. And you get this myopic look. But what an eye opener to actually be in the line embedded with the demonstrators and kind of listening, seeing, getting really uh, a, 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 a valuable perspective. Um, it, it changed my mind in a lot of ways. But you know what do they what do they say that that squeaky wheel gets the oil? They got a they got a ten percent squeaky wheel, and man, has it gotten some oil? Well, there's a there there was a big study actually done uh, decades ago uh, about riots and how they turn violent, and um, essentially the, what this sociologist said was that it, essentially everybody has a number, everybody in the mob has a number. Once they see a certain number of violent acts occur, then it basically yeah. uh, normalizes it for them. And somebody's number, like your number, may be a thousand, right? But my yeah. number may be one or two yep. and then it just kind of builds off of that and you have enough people that witness enough of the acts and then it just it, it just spreads um and uh, I, I think i read the same piece and i think it started with a broken somebody breaks a window yep you know and, and then you know that you know we all bristle on a monday but when the second or third window is broken on a tuesday now it's normal expected and you know people just follow suit and and that becomes a, a, a normal part of demonstrations I, I think i read the same piece and i think there was a lot of validity to that yeah. So, and, you know, no one else didn't help, you know, and, and I don't want to belabor it, but, you know, almost the, the planets almost lined up perfectly, too. You know, you have the lockdown, with yeah. going, you know, what's going on in COVID. So the schools are closed, the bars are closed, the clubs are closed, the restaurants are closed, a lot of people are out of work. So it, it almost appeared as though, you know, the, the big social thing to do was everybody huddle up tonight at nine o'clock and we're going to take to the streets and, and demonstrate. And I, and I know most the overwhelming majority of most, their hearts were in the right place. They really felt like they were trying to express themselves. But some found that as an opportunity. Let's, let's get out there and break, break some stuff, you know, the 5%, 10%. Sure. Well, it, it was also the only socially acceptable um, event of a mass gathering type that you could go to it, like without a stigma attached to it. Nobody was calling you reckless and no one was yeah. saying you were trying to kill grandma, yeah. right? All yeah. of that <laughs> yeah. stigma dr just faded away. Nobody made any of those accusations. Uh, unlike when somebody said, Hey, I want to open my business. I'm going to go, you know, stand in front of the governor's mansion. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you're trying to kill people. Um, no, it's taboo that you, you know, that there's just, <laughs> you know, there's just some things that you can't call out. And I, I found it intriguing. And I don't want to get down the political hole you know i'm a you know i have pretty resolute convictions about certain things but your your listeners aren't interested in those and it, much of them don't make sense anyway but <laughs> I, I found it rich that you know they, they kind of cornered dr fauci the other day one of the one of the congressmen i, I wouldn't believe that he was from ohio or pennsylvania and so you know you, you've condemned you know um um people not keeping their social distances at, at baseball games and you have to close down the baseball stadiums and you, you got a 50% of capacity at restaurants and the schools can't open. Uh, would you say that it's, you know, a public health risk to have thousands of people unmasked huddled up in the streets demonstrating? And he wouldn't, he wouldn't say the words he right. tried every which way, but loose to, to get around it and, and, you know, and, and circumvent the, 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 the question. But I mean, you're, you're going to cancel you out, man. If you, if you call any of that out, and that's just, 
you know, that's just the culture that we're living in right now. There's, you know, there's, you know, there's certain things you can say, and there's, there's obviously certain things that, that, you, that you can't. And, and I'm sure your listeners could appreciate yeah. Well, and the thing is, and I've talked about that very same thing, it, it is so obviously the case that if you pack thousands of people next to each other, screaming and yelling, and then they get, you know, pepper sprayed, hacking and coughing all over each other, of course you're going to increase the spread risk. Right. But nobody wants to say that because they don't oh. want to be yeah, called a racist, basically. No. And then you got poor some some poor schlub that's just sitting on the beach, you know, just listening to the <laughs> waves out there by himself. And, you know, you got a guy with cops coming with handcuffs and, you know, it just, you know, a little, little bit, a little bit of hypocrisy there. But, you know, I, I guess it's, it's, you know, the smarter people figure that, that, that out and I'll just uh, I'll stay on the sidelines and, and stay in my lane. But uh it doesn't make much sense to me. So last question I have for you is what do you think that the police miss in trying to understand the protests and the media? And what do the protesters and the media miss about police? Uh, I think that we all have the propensity and, it, and it's not just really unique to this in, in a lot of different situations in life. The propensity to, to paint everyone with one broad brush instead of digging in, really doing applying some critical thinking to it and listening and and you know just just try to figure it all out instead of just trusting a headline or a soundbite or a meme or a social media post you know uh everyone in the media they're not out to sensationalize and benefit on the backs of others benefit their careers on the backs of others every protester and demonstrator it's not a one-size-fits-all you know uh, there there are those who are just resolute that they've got a a, 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 a point to get across and that they want to express themselves, you know, and that's the overwhelming majority of them. Police officers, you got a this clown in Minneapolis, you know, all cops aren't cut that way. All cops aren't wired that way. It's one of the most egregious, sickening things that we in the profession have seen. And I have yet, and I meet a hell of a lot of cops, seen anybody who, who, who defended that. But so I think that's the, the, the bigger takeaway. You know, it's a, not a one size fits all approach. You can't paint a, a profession, a movement, a, a field, all with uh, with one broad brush. Rob, this is 2020. That's kind of what we do nowadays. I don't know. If... <laughs> yeah, it's sad. It is sad, man. But you know what? And, and you know, I was talking. It was actually another radio host. Uh, you know, maybe the pendulum has had to swing this far in one direction to build a little little momentum to to get back to to the middle. And that's where I'm going to live. I'm going to go on the optimism thing. All right. Well, good luck with that position. I, <laughs> I appreciate your time. Rob Tefano, the Public Safety Communications Director with the City of Charlotte. Uh, he also does work with LESPRA. It stands for Law Enforcement Strategic PR Agency. Thanks for your time, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thanks, brother. You deserve to sleep on a good mattress. You really do. And it makes a huge difference in not just your physical health. I mean, you will feel it. If you're in a saggy, lumpy old mattress, you're going to feel it. You probably don't even know it because it just gradually happens over a long period of time that you just wake up feeling worse and worse and worse, a little bit worse every single morning. And then you get a new bed from Mattress Man. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so well rested. It's like the best night's sleep I've had in decades. So, well, I don't know. How old is your mattress? Is it decades old? You need a new mattress. You deserve one. Mattressmanstores.com. And they got a great deal going on right now. It's the triple zero deal. Zero down, 0% APR. So no interest for up to 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. What have you have to lose except... Uh, another night's sleep in that crummy old mattress. They also have a Queen Gel Memory Foam mattress for three ninety nine. 
And with select mattress purchases, you get sheets, you get protectors and pillows, part of the free bedding bundle. So go to their website, mattressmanstores.com, or walk on into any of their four locations in the Asheville area. You got uh, Asheville and Arden and Hendersonville, and tell them you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. But they have five-star local white glove delivery service. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, and they do ship nationwide. So if you want to support uh, a company that supports the show and appreciates you, go to Mattressman, mattressmanstores.com and experience the difference at Mattressman. Great folks over there, buy local and sleep better. Speaking of local, leaders of Buncombe County's law enforcement agencies have signed an officer misconduct agreement. Buncombe County District Attorney Todd Williams as well as leaders of law enforcement agencies in the county. They did this uh, at a at an event on July 30th. This is the write-up in the Asheville Citizen Times, that the agreement makes clear that any information about police misconduct, from serious criminal violations to administrative problems, like you know failure to complete investigatory documents or something, all of that has to be reported quickly to the DA, that ensures criminal charges against officers are brought when necessary, okay? So no more slow rolling the paperwork before it gets to the district attorney uh, and then some sort of, you know, the the uh, statute of limitations or like the window closes and then the, uh, isn't this sort of what happened with the Johnny Rush uh, officer-involved beating that occurred a couple of years ago, right? That it just took too long and then the SBI was like, well, you know, we're out of it. You guys waited too long or something. So it also makes sure that, any information that could impeach the testimony of an officer in court has to be given to the defense as required by the Constitution. So if it's already in the Constitution, I don't really see this as being a new thing, but uh, they signed it as a part of an agreement. Everybody was on board. The Black Mountain police chief, Sean Freeman, was there, and he's a a big proponent of this agreement, and he said it's going to help bolster confidence in law enforcement. It's going to make it easier for chiefs trying to determine when they should contact the DA And he says, uh, you know, maybe even if they have to contact the State Bureau of Investigation about a particular officer and what they've done. The people who signed it were from law enforcement agencies represented in uh, Buncombe, Asheville, Black Mountain, Weaverville, Woodfin, Biltmore Forest, Montreat, and UNC Asheville, as well as Biltmore Company Police and Asheville Regional Airport Public Safety. Uh, Let's see here. What else? The agreement is a reinstatement of an expansion of one that was signed in 2018. Wait. Okay. So it's so you're just you're re-upping something that was already done two years ago. Okay. Well, it's also they say an expansion, too. So. All right. So. All right. It's okay. Maybe not as newsy, earth shattering, groundbreaking as it was two years ago, but it's an expansion. Nonetheless, the main difference is. Um, are additional protections for officers. So that's a nice thing, right? That's nice. Uh, The memorandum promises not to use instances of non-criminal misconduct for the purpose of assisting in a criminal prosecution of the agency employee. So you can see how this might make some sense, like if you've got an officer who gets you know, written up for insubordination to his commanding officer or something like that, and it's in his file. Um, Would that have to be provided to the defense attorney? So then they get to have the cop up on the stand and get to say, well, you have this write-up and you were insubordinate. Does that mean you have a problem with, you know, oh gosh, if his 
uh, uh, commanding officer is of a different race, then they could use that and bring it out and basically accuse the cop of being a racist on the stand. And uh, so this seems like it would limit that and would protect the officers from you know non-criminal. Now, obviously, if the cop does something uh, that is of a criminal nature, then first off, like, what's he still a cop for? <laughs> I don't know. These are <laughs> why? Why are you still an officer if you've been accused? Well, I guess if it's in his uh, file, maybe he doesn't ever get charged for it or something. And then in a new section, the DA promises to keep personnel information, quote, under lock and key. Okay. Uh, and because we know that stuff will never leak out like a you know body cam footage or something. And he says he will obtain a protective order from defense attorneys to ensure such information turned over will not become public record and that it is limited to the litigation of the matter before the court. So you can see the uh, the potential pitfalls here that uh, if you have some information that goes from APD or uh, one of these agencies, right, and goes to the Buncombe County DA, he keeps it under lock and key, but then he has to also provide it to the defense attorneys. And then he says, you know, I'm going to make sure that uh, we'll get a protective order from defense attorneys to make sure that this isn't going to become public record. And then, of course, when something does become public record, when it does leak out to the press, um, then they can both point their fingers at each other saying, oh, it didn't come from my office, it didn't come from my office, oh, we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what could go wrong, right? What could go wrong? It's You know how easy it is to take stuff digitally nowadays? Come on. Um, speaking of uh, the digital age, you know how important your website is to your business. You should, like, during this COVID era, you should uh, definitely have recognized that by now. Uh, but you may not be great at doing the web stuff. I'm not. And uh, that's why I turned to Schaefer Smith. Schaefer Smith Design, I was like, I need a logo and I don't understand like how to do all the graphics stuff. And uh, I and so I had him do it for me. And he's fantastic. I love the logo. He does professional services, corporate and small business entrepreneurs as well. Schaefer Smith can help you with the graphics, the logos, photos, he can help you build out your online store, but he also does website design and maintenance, so search engine optimization. Uh, he can make sure that your website is locked down so it's not going to be you know, affected by you know hackers and stuff. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Jim Garrity at National Review wrote a piece the other day called Should We Defund the Police as Homicides Rise in Major Cities? Now, this might seem like a silly question, <laughs> but in today's day and age, it's not so silly, is it? Yeah, it's not so silly. It would be different. And look, historically speaking, if you look at the trend lines over the last, you know, 60 years, violent crime has been dropping. It has been going down. Uh, just a steady downward trend. And... Uh, nobody really, I remember doing an interview with the author of a book, Violent Crime in America, The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America, and uh, like he wrote this whole book, and he doesn't even really know, like the experts disagree, there are all these different theories as to why the violent crime rate uh, has been declining over the last 60 years or so. Um, and so when people are like, oh, I remember the good old days and it wasn't this crime ridden, like unless you're from, I don't know, like the 30s or something, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what time frame you're remembering. Okay. Uh, now, that being said, we are seeing upticks in violence now. And I, I do wonder if the things that we were doing with 
regards to law enforcement that some of those things were helping to suppress crime. And now we're like, okay, you know what? Take the lid off. And when that happens, we're going to start seeing a return to the type of crime rates that were prevalent in the 60s and 70s and, and early 80s. I'm I'm concerned about that. So the Wall Street Journal did an analysis of crime statistics among the nation's 50 largest cities, and they found that reported homicides are up 24% so far this year. Um, that's uh, There are roughly 3,600 total homicides. Shootings and gun violence also on the rise, even though many other violent crimes like robbery have fallen. Now, some of this makes sense, right? In this, you know, these COVID times, uh, I suspect a lot of people staying home limits their opportunity to be victimized in a robbery, right? And and burglars and such, they're uh, they're not they're not so interested in breaking into people's homes when there's a really good chance that the people are there. Police, researchers, mayors, and community leaders, they see a confluence of forces at work in the homicide spike, Garrity writes. Institutions that keep city communities safe have been destabilized by lockdowns and protests against the police. Lockdowns and recession also mean tensions are running high and streets have been emptied of eyes and ears on their communities, right? Fewer people on the streets mean fewer witnesses, which means criminals have, you know, more room to operate. Some attribute the rise in crime to an increase in gang violence as well. The article notes, this Wall Street Journal article that Garrity is referring to, it notes that certain property crimes like robbery, burglary, and rape have dropped compared with last year. Uh, Crimes of opportunity are dropping because there are just fewer opportunities. There are fewer prospective victims on the streets. Now, Political activists are always coming up with some sort of a simple, catchy slogan and uh, or an idea that prove just about impossible to implement in practice. This is the defund the police. But I don't mean all of the defunds. Like, I'm not saying total defund. When I say abolish ICE, I don't mean abolish ICE. I mean, just set up a different thing that looks exactly like ICE, but call it something else. Uh, I don't mean abolish the police. I mean just change it in you know really fundamental ways. Okay, we cannot have a functioning society. Garrity writes without policing. Okay, it cannot be done. I have talked about this for years. Whenever I talk to uh, talk about like how do you start a civilization? How do you build a civilization? Right. Well, the first thing you're going to need is access to food and water. Right, and obviously humans. Uh, and then what? You need security. Because, I mean, think just back to, you know, caveman time. If you are, uh, you know, your little clan is, I'm sorry, sorry, I did not mean to use the word clan. Let's say your your group, your group of people, right? And you're like, oh, this looks like a good spot on the river. Let's let's set up here. And you start, you start, you know, uh, building your little huts and stuff and you start fishing in the river. And then a bear comes down and eats everybody and they're dead. And now your society is gone, right? That's why you need security. It's one of the first fundamental things any society needs is security. How do you protect yourself? And in our modern society, you have to have an umbrella of protection so everybody underneath the umbrella can operate freely 
without having to worry all the time about are we going to be invaded by some foreign country and are there going to be you know roving militias and warlords that take over my cul-de-sac stuff like that right because if you have to sit out in front of your house with you know uh, uh, with an assault rifle or a shotgun trying to protect your home from being looted and your family from being killed, then you're not going to have time to engage in economic activity. Okay, So society requires as one of the first foundational blocks security. So you need policing of some kind. The question is, what kind of policing do we want to have? And uh, this is, you know, maybe this is going to be an inflection point and we see a complete overhaul of how police officers do their jobs. Maybe that happens, right? Uh, we shall see. Um, but by the way, Garrity points out, um, anybody remember George Floyd? Remember that? Didn't, didn't all this start with a broad bipartisan consensus in support of equal treatment under the law? The 14th Amendment has stated that since 1868, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So didn't we have like a really widespread agreement here that whites and blacks and Latinos and Asians and everybody basically, right, that this is time for America to live up to this requirement? in our constitution i thought we were all on board with that but what do we get instead we get golden girls reruns that get pulled from streaming services right changes to the depiction of fantasy races in dungeons and dragons an end to the brands of eskimo pies and the dixie chicks and lady antebellum and uh, an all black mercedes formula one car slogans now on the backs of nba players right if we want a more just society, right, that's what I thought this was all about. We wanted a more just society, but instead we get headline-grabbing, rebranding efforts. That's Jim Garrity's piece at National Review. Now more than ever, you're going to need old grouches uh, in your life. Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. He's got, obviously, real U.S. military surplus. Um, by the way, if you are in law enforcement or uh, emergency medical services and you need uh, a lot more uniforms now because of all the COVID regulations, he can help you with that stuff. Talk to my friend Tim. He is the old grouch at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He's the second old grouch. His dad was the OG old grouch, the original one. And... Um, He's got an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies. He's got body armor of all kinds. These are made to NATO specs, and these are for in-store or over-the-phone purchases only. He's got face masks that are made by a local uh, veteran family, disabled vet, and they make them out of parachutes, military parachutes, so they are lightweight and soft. Steel gas cans, the pre-band kind, old-school ones, the good ones. Uh, for more than three decades, Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde, the shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, naturally. Oldgrouch.com is the website. Oldgrouch.com. Old Grouch's military surplus. So did you know that you can get kicked off of a jury pool or out of a jury pool for supporting Black Lives Matter? Questioning, this is a story uh, from, well, now a couple weeks ago, um, that it, it in California, where Krishala Reed uh, was seated for a jury, and the prosecutor homed in on one sentence from her questionnaire when she said, I support Black Lives Matter. 
And the prosecutor then asks Reed if she supported destroying other people's property, and she said no. Uh, after the questioning, the prosecutor used a preemptory strike, which uh, means they don't need a, an excuse. They're like, I don't like this jury, they're out. And they removed her from the trial. This was back in 2016. She looked around the jury box and didn't see any other black people, she told the Marshall Project. I felt targeted. It was a life-changing experience for me personally, and I still talk about it to this day. I tell my kids about it, not to scare them, but to make them aware, she said. The questioning of Reed's support for Black Lives Matter will be considered by a California appeals court. Lawyers for the defendants in the double murder trial say that the decision to remove Reed violated the Constitution's ban on excluding prospective jurors based on race. Now, I would submit that it is not based on race. It was based on her support of an organization. For example, if I got up on the, uh, on the stand or in the, in the box and they asked me, Pete, uh, do you support the KKK? And I said, yes. Do you think that might disqualify, uh, disqualify me from a jury? I think it might because of the organization, right? Because of the organization and the views that the organization espouses. She's not the only one, by the way. There was a case in Minneapolis in 2016, another one out of Nevada in 2018. And... Um, this year, a North Carolina court upheld a conviction where a potential juror, a college student who was involved in Black Lives Matter, was dismissed by the prosecutor who said that her activism raised questions about whether she could be impartial towards law enforcement. And that's a really good point, because if law enforcement is getting up there to make a case against a person and your activism is against law enforcement, how are you going to be able to set that aside? How do you set that aside and say, oh, yeah, I can be completely impartial? I mean, I just care enough about this thing to, you know, go out in the streets and, you know, risk coronavirus and COVID-19 death. I'm going to go out into the streets. I'm going to protest because this is worth it, right? Racism is, uh, you know, killing off racism is worth it. And this is the movement of our time and the cops uh, are terrible and we need to reform all of this. Oh, but I could totally be impartial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. L let me hear what the cop has to say. I, I would totally believe him. Not guilty! Like, I can see how that goes. Everybody can. But it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with any uh, folks. Uh, well, I, I guess I would want them on my jury, actually. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate it. Consider becoming a patron of the program. Get cool stuff, exclusive content. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for the support. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. And uh, don't break anything while I'm gone.